Go ahead and open up in your Bible to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be in verses 17 through 28 this morning. I've called this series, The King Has Come. Matthew starts with saying that Jesus is the Messiah, which to the Jewish people, this is the promised coming king that would overthrow their oppressors, do away with everything that was wrong and miserable in the world, make their lives better, set things back to how they thought it should be, or so that was their impression. And so Jesus comes, and sure enough, he comes miraculously, born to a virgin, born in a stable. And then he comes and he's preaching and teaching things that nobody's ever heard before, powerful, mighty teachings. Surely this is our king. And he performs miracles. Sick are made well. Lepers are made pure. Dead are even raised to life. Surely this is our king and this is it. And he has come. And he begins to talk about his kingdom that is coming. And the disciples, his followers, are getting excited. Some of the people are kind of like, well, we're not really sure. Who does this guy think he is? It's not really doing what we expected. So I don't know. This is a bit much for me. And some people stop following him. But his disciples are right there. Yeah, we're in, Jesus. We, we want this too. We want your kingdom. This is great. But you know, Jesus is an unexpected king. Because he's born in a manger, as I said, and yet Matthew quotes from the Old Testament that he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. So he's not just a great human king. He's God come to be with us in the flesh. And then rather than demanding to be served as a king, he comes and moment after moment after moment, he shows humility and he serves those that the disciples are looking at and saying, wait a minute, they should serve you. Something is different here. And he constantly is telling his disciples that they are to live As servants. We've seen this theme over and over again in the book of Matthew, and it comes up again in our chapter, or our passage rather, today. Let me set the stage for you. Jesus' ministry is coming to an end. His earthly ministry, I should say. He has spent several years teaching and preaching and doing miracles all over the nation of Israel, even into some of the Gentile, the non-Jewish territories. He's traveled with his 12 apostles for much of this time. They've been right there with him every step along the way, watching him, observing his miracles, listening to him teach. Along with that, he has others that are called disciples, also his followers, not designated by him as future leaders of the church, but his followers and they're learners and they're listening and they're following along with him. Also, as we pick up the passage today, we need to understand that along with the 12 and along with the other disciples that are journeying or traveling with Jesus, there is a great crowd of people because they're going to Jerusalem for one of the most important high holy days of the Jewish religion for Passover. But not only that, these people have also seen what Jesus does. And some of them are excited, some of them not really sure, but they know something big is coming. They know something big is going to happen when Jesus enters Jerusalem into the heart of Jewish culture and religion and leadership, something big is going to happen. And it's in this setting 
this expectation and this tension that Jesus pulls aside his 12. We see this often in Matthew. And I love this. He pulls aside people and says, let's, let's get away from the crowd for a moment. And just listen to me. I think there's a lesson in that for all of us. Pull away from the craziness of our lives from time to time. And let's really sit and learn from and listen to Jesus in his word. So he pulls his 12 aside and he has something important to tell them. And once again, this is the third time in Matthew, he tells them he is on his way to Jerusalem to die. We'll pick it up in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Starting in verse 17, it says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The Gospel of Matthew is laid out like a long journey, purposefully planned to arrive, at a, or to arrive at a predetermined destination. And that destination is the cross. And this was baffling to the people of their day. We wear crosses as jewelry. We put them in our churches. We have them outside to designate this as a church. Crosses are meaningful to us. For them, they were the symbol of absolute shame and horror and persecution. There was nothing good about a cross at all. And here in this passage, Jesus tells some very important things to his disciples. He is going to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he knows he will be arrested. He will be beaten, mocked, crucified, will die, and will raise again. This is the third time that Jesus has told his disciples this important truth. Each time he gives a little bit more information, his disciples constantly struggle to understand this. Maybe third time's a charm. Spoiler, it's not. Peter, if you remember from the very first time that Jesus said he was going to be crucified, Peter just outright stood up and rebuked him, Matthew says. Rebuked him. Jesus, Son of God, Lord Most High uh, over heaven and earth, you're wrong. And I won't let you do this. That's, that's basically, I put some words in there, but that's kind of what Peter's doing. Jesus, you cannot do this. Each time he gives a little bit more information. This time the things that are added is that he will be handed over to the Gentiles and that he will be crucified. It's the first time he's mentioned the way that he will be put to death, that he will go to a cross. See, the Jewish people couldn't crucify anyone. That was a Roman way of punishing people. Also, here he brings in the Gentiles, the Romans, a Gentile is anybody who's not Jewish. So he brings them in. He says, not only will I be handed over to the Jewish religious leaders, but I will also be handed over to the Roman authorities, the Gentiles, and then my death will be on a cross, the most gruesome, hideous form of punishment I believe ever thought up by crazy people. All of this news is given to his disciples. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do want us to realize a very, very important point. Jesus' going to the cross was not an accident. 
It wasn't just a difficult situation that he found himself in and thought, well, this will work out. I guess I'll go to the cross. It was the plan from the very beginning. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter, after Jesus dies on the cross, raises from the dead. Peter's giving a sermon to crowds that probably would have been at the crucifixion. And Peter says this, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God planned for the cross. When Jesus came and he was born in that manger, he knew he had a destination, and that destination was the cross. When Jesus was preaching and teaching and doing miracles, he knew where that journey was heading. It was the cross. And now on this day, as Jesus is walking on the road to Jerusalem, he knows exactly where he's going and exactly what's going to happen and why it must happen. He is going to the cross. Jesus is purposefully traveling to Jerusalem to die in our place. The cross was never plan B. It was God's plan from the very beginning. Before Adam and Eve drew breath, God knew his son Jesus would go to the cross. Before God called Abraham and developed the Jewish nation and gave them his law, he knew he was going to send his son Jesus to go to the cross. It was his plan from the very beginning. So Jesus uses this plan and his purpose to tell his disciples, this is what's going to happen, but he also applies this to how they should live and how we should live, that we are to live a crossed shape or a cross shaped service rather. In verses 20 to 27, we see a kind of response from the disciples. We would expect a response. They're going up to this city. Jesus has just said some pretty awful things are going to happen that are going to end with him dying and being raised from the dead. And we would expect them to have quite a response. So let's see how they respond this time. Verse 20. And the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine might sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now don't miss the link there. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons. This is not just like sometime later. The gospels actually link these things. Jesus announces he's going to die and a mom comes with her two sons and says, hey Jesus, could we talk about something? My sons are pretty cool. Kind of like them to have positions of importance in your kingdom. Could you, could you put them at your right hand and after your, at your left hand? Can you imagine kind of how tone deaf this is? Jesus, the son of God, has just announced that he's going to the cross to suffer and die and he'll be raised again. And what she thinks is, can my sons get in on that? Now, understand this is not just the mother coming. This is the mother with the sons. In fact, some of the other gospel writers leave out the mother altogether. And really what's going on is that this is James and John wanting to ask a question. They're just using their mom to do it. In fact, when Jesus replies, he doesn't just reply to the mother. He replies to the sons or maybe to all three of them. Because down where it says, um, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup? That's actually plural. He's not just talking to the mothers. He's addressing the sons. 
James and John here are Zebedee's sons. Jesus calls them sons of thunder. I imagine they were loud and boisterous and forceful, courageous, bold, sons of thunder. They were part of the inner circle of three, James, John, and Peter. They seem to be, throughout the Gospels, the disciples and then the, one, uh, the three of the twelve apostles that were the closest to Jesus, his closest friends. Jesus purposefully, at times, leaves some of the other apostles behind and invites James and John and Peter to come with him for something unique. They're present at the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17. Jesus kind of has his humanity stripped back and they see the glory of God shine through Jesus Christ. And it's just those three, James, John, and Peter. If we fast forward in Matthew, when Jesus goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, he brings the 12 with them or with him and he tells them to wait. But then he says to James, John, and Peter, will you come with me? You three. Pray with me. Think about the position these three had, honored by Jesus in profound ways. I imagine all three of them were in some way leaders among the apostles. We also need to understand that Jesus has told all of his apostles, you will reign on 12 thrones. Now, this is the 12. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You will reign on 12 thrones. They already know they're going to have a position of importance. And yet, here they are, and they want to be the most important. That's what the left and the right were of the king. To sit to the left and the right of the king were the positions of greatest authority, greatest importance. That's what they are asking for. They know something big is coming in Jerusalem. I don't think they quite understand everything that Jesus has said about the cross and the resurrection, but they know. The king is coming into the king's city and something amazing is going to happen and we want to get in on that. Isn't it interesting that this is how his followers respond to Jesus saying he is going to be crucified and raised from the dead? Their first thought is, we want important positions. Now look how Jesus responds in verses 22 to 23. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left hand, or to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Think of that warning. You don't understand. James, John, I I think he didn't say this sternly. I imagine it was a tone of love. I love you guys, but you don't get it. You don't know what you are asking. They must drink the cup he is going to drink. What does this cup mean? In the Old Testament, a cup is often used as a symbol of the fury and wrath and judgment of God. It's something that is filled up and then poured out or something that somebody else would drink. To give you an example of this, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, the prophet Jeremiah says, This is what the Lord God of Israel said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Great job description. Go tell people God is mad at them. 
This was Jeremiah's job, to go around and pronounce judgment on people because they were living in sin. And he says, take this cup, this judgment, make the nations drink it. Proclaim that judgment on them. The cup is filled with God's wrath. And Jeremiah is to take this to the nations. Now, with this idea of a cup symbolizing the wrath or the judgment of God and being poured out on people as an act of judgment on them, let's go back to what Jesus said in verses 22 to 23. Who's going to drink the cup? Well, first, it's Jesus. Isn't that interesting? A cup that symbolizes the wrath, the fury, the judgment of God. And Jesus says, that's my cup. I'm going to drink it. Jesus is going to go to the cross so that the wrath, the fury, the judgment of God that we deserve will be poured out on him and he will drink it to the very bottom in our place. And he knows it in advance. And he's saying to his followers, this is what I'm going to do for you. And you're arguing about who is greatest. He also says to James and John that there is a sense in which they too will drink this cup. This man, James, in a few months, will be the first of the apostles to be put to death. His brother, John, we believe, is the writer of Revelation. He will spend much of his life exiled, away from friends and family, because he believed in Jesus And Jesus makes an interesting statement when he says that the positions on his left and his right are not for him to give, but have been prepared by his Father. We talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All equally God. All equal in authority. And yet we see here Jesus submitting to the will of his Father and saying, granting these positions of honor is not my job. That's God the Father's job. I defer to him. This pattern in the Trinity where each is equal yet serves a particular role is a pattern for the church. And it's something the apostles can't grasp. That it's not about their position, it's about their act of service. And Jesus applies this to them. Now let's look at how the other disciples respond to what James and John have asked. In verse 24, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. I think that's a very polite way of saying it. They were mad. Who do these two guys think they are? Come on, James and John, what are you doing? Now, I would like to think that they would want to pull them aside and say, hey, we're all servants here. We shouldn't be going for the important positions. You know what Jesus has said. We're all just equal. I would like to think that's what they were thinking, but it's not because we know how Jesus now rebukes all of them. See, what they were thinking is, how dare you seek positions of great importance? That's what we want too. We want to be great. We want to be important. Jesus has just said that they're on their way to Jerusalem where he will be mocked and flogged and crucified and on the third day raised to life and they're arguing again over who will be the greatest in the kingdom. Guys, people not understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing new. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. 
Jesus' response makes it clear that their motives are far from pure. They all want to be important. Look at verses 25 to 27. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus has spoken about this idea so many times. The concept of demonstrating living the gospel by serving other people, not by seeking status or authority. And here he refers to the power structures of the day, the way that their government worked, that the Gentiles sought positions of status. Now, it's interesting, the NIV translates this as lord it over, which sounds like people doing their job with the wrong intent. That's not actually what the phrase means. It's talking about people who are relying on a position rather than on an attitude of service. He's he's not necessarily saying it's wrong. He's saying this is just how the Gentile world works. If you wanted to be important in the Roman Empire, you sought a position. You didn't try to earn it. You tried to buy it. You tried to win the favor of somebody, get put in that high position. And once you were there, you could tell anybody else what to do because you had status and authority. And Jesus says his church does not work according to the standards of the world. We must think differently. Rather than seeking to be important and fighting for a position that we think we should be given, we should instead seek to serve others as our Savior has served us. This is what I'm calling cross-shaped service. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just something that we say, I believe Jesus died for me and that saves me. Oh, that's definitely true and that's the start. But now it's this truth that my Savior left heaven, came to serve me, died on the cross in my place. That is now an example for how I too am to live. If I am saved by this, I am changed by this and I will live it out in my life. I will demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ by serving those around me. Cross-shaped service. Jesus uses the cross as an example of how others should live. But now what Jesus says next changes everything. It is ground-shaking, earth-shattering truth that would have been so difficult for his disciples to understand about what the cross is all about. See, Jesus' purpose in going to the cross is not just to be an example. It is an example, but it's never just an example. Jesus did something on the cross. He paid a price that we cannot pay. He went to the cross to pay a price. Look at verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to help us understand just how profound this phrase in this verse is. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I want to spend a couple moments in a passage where Paul expounds upon this thing that Jesus is talking about. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Paul writes this. 
who, speaking of Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Who, being in very nature God, that's equality. Jesus is equal to God in every way. He is all the authority of God, all the sovereignty of God, all the wisdom of God, all the righteousness, all the holiness of God. He is equal in every way to God, especially in authority. But he chooses not to hold on to this, not to demonstrate it, not to demand that others treat him this way. Instead, he makes a choice. Look at 7 to 8. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. By nature, he is equal to God, yet he chooses to take on the nature of a servant. Other translations have in form he is equal to God, but he chooses to take on the form of a servant. The important thing to understand is it's the exact same word. He is this, but he chooses to live this. He made a choice to serve you and to serve me. He made a choice when he was sitting up in heaven, all the glory, all the deity, all the authority of God, he said, I'm going to step out of this. I'm going to go down where they are. And he didn't come as a king. He didn't walk around with a shining halo over his head, contrary to all the old paintings. People didn't see him just like, oh, you're so amazing, Lord Most High. No, they thought he was nothing. Because he looked like nothing. He acted like nothing. He was born into a situation that made him nothing. He chose to become a servant. Bottom of the barrel. Lowest rung of the ladder. He chose to do that for us. Look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He chose to become nothing, and God raised him up. And all of this hinges right there on the end of verse 8, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's the purpose. That's what he's talking to his disciples about. I came to serve. They're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, in all humility, he says, look at me. Consider me. I came to serve. Not only did he come to serve, but he came to pay a price on the cross. Look back at verse 28 of Matthew chapter 20. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. How many of us have struggled with this idea that I've got to earn God's love? I've got to serve him. I've got to do enough good things to meet up to his expectation for me. 
I want to serve the Lord, and that's good. And we can talk throughout Scripture about serving the Lord, but understand you cannot begin to understand the concept of serving the Lord until we have first accepted that we had to be served by the Lord. Something had to take place that we could never accomplish on our own. Jesus went to the cross to give his life as a ransom. We were stuck and enslaved in sin, hopeless and helpless. Jesus looked down from heaven and said, I will go. I will live among them. And I will go to the cross and take the cup of the wrath of God that is going to be poured out on them. And I will take it on me in their place. That's how Jesus served us. We can be saved because Jesus served us by suffering in our place. That is a truth that we need to accept. That, that is a truth that we need to believe in and hold on to. I cannot do it. He did it in my place. That's not, well, I'm going to work all the harder to be worthy of this great gift that God has given me. No, you don't work hard to become worthy of a gift. You say thank you and you accept the gift. And then you don't turn around and say, oh, that gift is great, but let me talk about how I can be great, Jesus. I want to be first in the class. I want to sit on the right and left hand of you. No, he says, if I have served you in this way, go and serve each other in the same way. Now, he's not saying go and die for somebody else. We can't pay the sin or the price of sin for anybody else. Only Jesus can do that. By living as servants, though, we demonstrate the gospel in this world. This is what I've called the way of the cross. I know the Catholic Church has a a ritual where they go through the stations of the cross and they they go through what happened. And that's good. That can be meaningful. But I think what Scripture says is the way of the cross is to understand the way that Jesus went for us. Accept that he did that for you. Now follow that example in how you live with other people. He served us. And we who are saved by him are to live the way of the cross, to live a cross-shaped life, a cross-changed life, a cross-demonstrating life, so that others will look and say, why? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense in our world. Why do you live this way? We can say, let me tell you about Jesus and what he did for me. And how that has changed everything I am and everything I believe and how I look at everything. We don't serve to be saved. We are saved so that we can serve him. I invite you to live the way of the cross. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your savior, I want you to hear that truth. He paid the price for you. The Bible makes it very clear that we are enslaved to sin. We are stuck and there is nothing we can do about it. You can't claw your way out. You can't climb your way out. You can't do good deeds enough to get your way out of the hole that sin has caused for you. And so Jesus came into that hole 
And he paid the price in your place. The price has already been paid. This is the great tragedy of those that don't receive Jesus as their Savior. The price is already paid. The ransom is done. We don't have to live in slavery any longer. We don't have to be lost in sin any longer. But we do have to say, yes, Jesus, I accept that. We have to accept that the price has been paid that we could not pay on our own. Friends, if you're here and you've never received Jesus, make today the day to come alive, to come out of slavery and being lost and to say, I believe Jesus paid the price for my sins. For those of you who are here and you say, I know this, Pastor, I I received Jesus a long time ago or maybe recently. We each need to ask ourselves now, as I think the disciples needed to truly ask themselves, are we living the way of the cross? Is our life shaped by the priorities of the cross or by the priorities of this world? Are we demonstrating the way of the cross to this world? Or are we just showing this world more of what they've come to expect? We are to be different. We are to live the way of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place. We thank you for that gift. We thank you that he came willingly and knowingly, purposefully to journey to the cross, willingly to be handed over to those that he had authority over and was more powerful than, and yet he submitted to them because it was your plan for our salvation for him to die in our place. And Father, I pray that unlike the disciples, we wouldn't just take our own ideas and put it on the gospel and our own priorities and try to live that out, but we would submit, that we would say yes to all that Jesus is and all that he's done for us and accept the incredible gift of salvation. And then, Father, may we be changed. May you wring out of us the priorities of this world for position and power and influence, and instead saturate us with the message of the gospel that we would live out this life of service to others, not so that they would look at us and be so amazed, but they would look to you and to your son's death on the cross, and they would say, I need that. And Father, that idea of living the way of the cross is just as difficult today as it was back then. And there are consequences and difficulties along the way. And yet, as your son preached throughout the Gospel of Matthew, his kingdom is coming. He is returning to take us home. And his kingdom will reign forever and ever, and nothing will overcome it. And may we live now lives shaped by the cross in the sure hope that one day we will reign with you forever in your glory and your love in your grace, and your mercy. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.